This is El Paisano Media, and you're listening to EPM Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rio Hondo's Pretty Neat Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Ramirez, and in this episode, we're talking about fantasy? Yeah, actually, we're going to be talking about fantasy. So, first things first. Sorry about the hiatus. Semester was over, I took a big break, and it's been kind of slow to start for this new, what I'm deeming, season two. But alongside season two comes a little bit of housekeeping. Yeah, that's right. We actually have some other stuff besides just the podcast for once. So, Podcast format's going to change a little bit. Hopefully, within these next few weeks, I'll be able to further explain exactly what I'm trying to do. But sit tight, enjoy the ride, and we'll see how this stuff shakes out. Aside from that, I'm also going to be having an Instagram that's launching alongside this first episode. Uh, You could go ahead and follow that. I'll most likely put the link to that Instagram in the description of this episode. If you're on Spotify, go to the the description of the episode. It should have that Instagram. If you follow my personal Instagram, I'll also be posting it in my stories. So there's that. Uh, (laughs) But now that like the housekeeping and stuff is out of the way, as you can tell, you know, everything, there's a lot of moving parts to this still, Um, still getting everything kind of put together, but I I didn't want to put off recording this episode any longer. I wanted to kind of put my, my thoughts to the microphone. (laughs) You know, I really miss doing this, but it's, it's already been like a minute and and a half, almost two minutes already. So, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's get it, let's get into it, you know? Okay. So fantasy. What are we talking about? <laughs> okay, so there I was, right? It's like 9.30. Yeah, that, that's pretty late, right? 9.30 p.m. And I'm like, man, I really got to record this episode tonight. But what am I going to talk about? Like, I have... I'm sorry, I have to really... <laughs> but I, I have stuff written down, you know, like episode ideas. I I have like templates, everything, you know, I have everything put together, but it's, it's like writer's block of the mouth, you know, surprisingly enough, sometimes I can't talk on and on for all, like all eternity. And I was having a really hard time coming up with what to talk about. You know, I I had stuff written down, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. You know, it just wasn't clicking. And I kept finding myself thinking about Elden Ring, the the new game that just released from the same developers that make the Dark Soul games and the Demon Soul game and Bloodborne, right? You know, really hard games that are based in medieval fantasy, but from the perspective of Japanese creators, which I think is pretty cool. And I haven't actually played Elden Ring yet, but I just bought it today and it's downloading as I'm recording this because my Xbox takes forever to download stuff. But I, I just kept thinking about it, you know, and, and then I realized that's it, Brandon. You know, every good episode of the podcast that you record is just you talking about stuff that you like. So that's what we're doing today. We're just going to be having a quick little nice little 
most likely not quick or little, <laughs> chat about fantasy. So I guess starting off with Elden Ring and medieval fantasy would be a really great way to start this off, especially because recently medieval fantasy has been something that's really big on my mind. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a very, very new <laughs> dungeon master. Uh, I play Dungeons and Dragons with a couple of my friends. I run our campaign, and really, this is the second time we're running what is essentially the same campaign, and it's all homebrew, which I know if any of you play D&D, that's probably like, oh, you're D DMing for the first time, and you're homebrewing it. That's terrifying. And yeah, it is, and it's stupid, but I'm doing it. <laughs> Anyways, really, what's super cool about D&D is that it's this this way of telling stories not only from the perspective of the dungeon master who's the person that's running the game but the perspective of all, all the players everybody has input into into the story that's being told you know uh I know a lot of the modules kind of had like a beginning and the and end but something that happens a lot with the homebrew at least from what I've seen is that even though there's the beginning and the end you know, things get derailed, different things happen, um, really anything's on the table. And that's, that's really interesting to me. <laughs> to, I, I know I use that like, oh yeah, that, I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, no, no doubt, I think it's interesting, but I, I think it's, it's a fascinating way of telling stories because it deviates from the traditional three-act structure and, uh, it, 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 it's, it's an entirely different way of telling stories that's based more around long form sort of campfire back and forth. That, that's what I think about when I, when I think about D and D and like just focusing on the narrative aspects of D and D really quickly. Um, the idea that it's, it's a, a give and take and a push and pull between the dungeon master and the players <clears throat> is really integral to what separates D&D from other forms of interactive storytelling like video games and stuff like that because video games and a lot of things like video games they get really really praised for multiple endings sometimes or for twists and turns and things like that right like a lot of other narratives get really um, praised for stuff like that but the thing with D&D &D is that like that's happening constantly right like uh the twists and turns are all at the whims of the player and i think that's where a lot of the fun comes in with dnd because a good dm will adjust to the whims of the player it'll they'll let them tell the story that they want to tell and uh, i really think that's super powerful with regards to storytelling, especially in the sense of like a group story that you're telling. And it, it really lends credence to the memories that you're getting when you play this game. It, it allows them to almost feel like real memories. You know, you become so much more attached to them because it's not only something that you've forged and created, but it's something you've forged and created with friends, with other people. And I think there's something about, you know, the weird... <laughs> um, tribal part of the human brain that really really like just covets that aspect of storytelling but anyways <laughs> kind of reverting back to what I was talking about when I first introduced the topic of Dungeons and Dragons um, so this is 
technically my first time DMing. Um, I dungeon mastered a game like two years ago now, pre-COVID. Um, we played like five games and then we split. And so with this new game, I took the same general basic idea that I had back then, workshopped it for like a year on and off. And now I have a much more flushed out setting, much more flushed out everything. And I was like, hey, you know, do you guys want to play? Talk some of my coworkers into it. And now we're playing. And the thing that's like really fascinating to me is seeing my coworker sort of become enamored with the same sort of um, medieval European fantasy that really drew me into D&D in the first place. Like, I like all types of fantasy. I like all types of historical fantasy. I like, you know, it doesn't really matter the cultures or anything like that. I, I am a big fan of samurai fantasy. <laughs> you know, I, who doesn't like ninjas? I, I love Naruto. You know, I really like uh, Mesoamerican fantasy and, and the way that that's incorporated a lot of the times in, like, random bits of media you know you have uh nightwolf from mortal Kombat, which is like a really cool character concept really cool character it just kind of comes out of nowhere and i love that i love like like nobody knows where to put native americans so they're just like in in random things as like a really cool person I, and i i think that's really cool the same goes for like the vaquero um you know, in, in Fallout, which is something we'll probably talk about in this episode, in Fallout New Vegas, you have Raul, who's played by the, the wonderful, ever-talented, and super amazing uh, um, Danny Trejo. And he plays Ra- the old-school ghoul Raul. <laughs> that's that's what I call him. And his, his whole arc is based around him getting a vaquero outfit, you know? And to me, that's... <clears throat> it's cool. It's really cool how you can lend credence to these cultures in fantasy and you know it doesn't necessarily need to be so afraid of almost not necessarily portraying a caricature of that culture but portraying the the real roots of it you know i think something that's that's kind of scary and really hard to do is how do you portray a culture without seeming like you're only portraying the stereotypes and historical culture and stuff like that i think historical fantasy rather can do a really good job of that by um how do i put this revolving more around the roots and history of the culture rather than the modern day perception of the modern day culture itself follow anyways (laughs) uh, back that was a really weird uh tangent sorry about that uh if you're new to this Please go back and listen to last season, I guess, because I do this a lot. But anyways, um, yeah, so I am super, like, fascinated and enamored with medieval fantasy for some reason. Like, European medieval fantasy just drives me up a wall. I love it. And seeing my friend become really enamored with it, not necessarily just because of D&D, but because of Vox Machina, The Legend of Vox Machina, which is a Amazon uh, Amazon Prime um, TV series, I guess. It's like their Netflix. You know what it is. This is the internet. Yeah, it's it's their, uh, it, it, it's a show on Amazon Prime that's based on the Dungeons and Dragons stream, Critical Role, and their first campaign. 
and it's voiced by the same voice actors and everything from the from the actual game and that to me is like whoa like my friend got into this when I've, i'm always talking about critical role i'm always like you guys should watch it, you guys should watch it she watched Vox Machina she was like I like this and then little by little she started to get into medieval fantasy and to me that's like really cool because I love medieval fantasy I think it's aesthetically speaking really beautiful because like there there is the like you know stereotypical just knights in shining armor and don't get me wrong I love that stuff too but there's also like weird renaissance stuff and and what me and my girlfriend like to call catholic drama which is when you look at like paintings of um, the Virgin Mary crying and weeping and stuff like that, or, you know, different explorations of the saints and, and you know, the, the great tragedy of the martyrdom of these saints and things like that, all being projected in paintings and writings and stuff. And that's another aspect of medieval fantasy that I really like because you can encapsulate that with your characters. And I love it. Medieval fantasy is, I feel like, on the surface, <clears throat> really easy to understand. And then once you break down that surface, it's like, oh my god, there's all kind. It's a rabbit hole of sorts. Really, it is. If you'll excuse me, I need to take a drink. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I'm leaving that in there specifically because I already cut out me burping once. So I'm leaving that in there because it wouldn't be an episode of RHPNP if I didn't have to do something awkward during it. But um, hopefully this recording is a little bit better than the ones where last... Uh, I keep wanting to say semester, but I should be saying season. So hopefully these were a little bit better than last season. Anyways, okay, so... Medieval fantasy, we've established, that's my thing. We've established, I like D&D. We've established, I really like the weird religious aspects of like deep medieval fantasy, right? But what if I told you that without like completely unbeknownst to me, on the other side of the planet, somebody else was like, yeah, this stuff is pretty dope too. And then they made video games out of it. Yeah, that, that that's 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 like Demon Souls and Dark Souls and Bloodborne and now Elden Ring. So before I kind of delve into that, I'm gonna pull back a little bit and we're gonna talk about Bethesda games. And well, not all Bethesda games. Specifically, we're gonna be touching on the Elder Scrolls. And then I'm gonna talk about some of the similarities between the, the way that these ex different um, explorations of medieval fantasy are connected. But before that, before I get ahead of myself, let's talk about Elder Scrolls. So the Elder Scrolls series is a series by Bethesda. Um, you, you probably know Skyrim. That's the most popular one. Well, the lore and storytelling and world building in Skyrim goes way beyond just the surface level like I'm a viking, I'm a knight kind of dragons stuff. It's deep. It goes really deep and it's confusing and really weird. If you have the chance, um I believe it's Camelworks or Fudge Muppet, one of the two, they have a podcast where um they did 
I think it was like three or four episodes uh, going through the um, Elder Scrolls iceberg. <laughs> and I mean, this thing is huge. I'm massive. It It's like a million levels <laughs> of just crazy stuff. And one of the things that they continuously, continuously, continuously touch on is the 36 lessons of Vivek. So what are the 36 lessons of Vivek? Morrowind, which was, I believe, the third game in the Elder Scrolls series, was really incredible. I mean, like, just aesthetics-wise, uh, fantasy-wise, thematic-wise, it, it was a benchmark for the possibilities in the realm of Elder Scrolls. I'm going to break down this story like super cheaply, so it, I'm not doing it justice at all. I'm mostly just kind of speedrunning this to talk about the 36 lessons of Vivek. But basically, you play this dude called Neverine? Neverine? Nerv. You, you play <clears throat> Big Bad Boy, right? Who's sent to Morrowind by evil gods who the dark elves worship to fight essentially three pretender gods who stole power from good gods to become fake gods one of these <laughs> fake gods is an entity known as Vivek whose skin is half dark elf half Chimer, which is like the original origin, like the the premier race of the elves, like the first one, right? And he has, like, he's always depicted as having a halo around him. He's He floats. He meditates. He's a warrior poet. He's a living contradiction, which in itself is a cool concept. But Elder Scrolls takes it deeper. Very deeper, if that makes sense. Basically, he's a walking, existing contradiction because he's achieved something that the Elder Scrolls calls Kim. C-H-I-M, not K-I-M. K-I-M? C-H-I-M. Yeah, okay, anyways, I, <laughs> I am farther from achieving Kim the further into this podcast we get. And I hope you're enjoying it. Anyways, he has achieved something called Kim, which is when these characters <laughs> in this. So, okay, easiest way for me to explain this is like you. Yes, you listener right there. Yeah. You're a character in Skyrim for this example. Okay. So you're living your life in Skyrim, la di da whatever. And then you start to learn forbidden knowledge, something, who knows. And then you find out all the forbidden knowledge. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Then you find out that your entire existence is based on the dream of a god who's asleep. And then 
the average person, upon realizing that their very existence and the very fabric of reality around them isn't real. Well, they would just logic themselves out of existence. But not you. Oh no. Not you. You're Vivek. You achieve Kim. Which is a state of being in which you can accept the fact that you're not real. But surely you are. And it's that state of being that Vivek is in. He is real, but he's not. And he realizes both, allowing him to have access to all these crazy powers and everything. It's like becoming the one in the Matrix, except, like, you always have the powers of the one. Like, you can manipulate reality and stuff like that. But also, there's a lot of, like, underlying aspects of it that have to do with philosophy and, and things like that. And that's where uh, the 36 Lessons of Effect come in, because in his writings and his actions and stuff, it seems like he's went into the past and changed his past while also affecting his future. And it's almost impossible to understand how much he's affected the world itself. It's almost like the Vivek that you're fighting, the Vivek that you kill, is only an aspect of Vivek, that he still exists somewhere because once he achieved Kim, once he achieved essentially godhood, he exists at all times. The past, the present, the future. So if you kill him, technically he already existed in the future. If that makes sense. <laughs> Which it shouldn't. And that's what I mean when I say like medieval fantasy can get kind of weird because of these aspects and notions of godhood and how they can affect things and the drama behind it. Remember how I mentioned that Catholic drama? The, the drama and the tragedy behind existing at all points in time. Having to face all of your, for lack of a better term, earthly mistakes. Earthly shortcomings. I'm going to take another drink. <laughs> that, that's my earthly shortcoming. I need to be sustained to keep recording. I'm leaving the straw in there because <clears throat> I've already cut out myself burping twice. I keep having to do that. I'm sorry. Anyways, so what does any of this weirdness have to do with El like Elden Ring and Dark Souls? Well, it's because a lot of Western RPGs that are based on fantasy, like medieval fantasy, don't really do it with the same gusto. Let's say it doesn't do really really do it with the same gusto that uh, Japanese games do. Um, so <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking like Skyrim is basically like soft D&D &D, unless you're willing to get like really deep into it. And then there's like there's Dark Souls where nobody like no casual viewer really can understand the story behind it because it's so like it's it's inundated with that that same thing that I had called like catholic drama it's inundated with that um that motif of of drama of like religious drama and you're a champion and everyone's sad and and there, there's so much death and and it's it's so morbid and and macabre and life draining 
you know, like it, it, it's cool. And yeah. And, 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 you know, you're exploring like these really beautiful, if not macabre surroundings and things like that. But, you know, the, 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 the themes behind it mixed in with the difficulty of the game really sort of like press you down and press you down and press you down. And that's the thing that these games do so well. They explore really like what is intended to be depressing environments in a way in, in hopeless environments in a way that western rpgs don't necessarily do they do it in a, with like in spanish we have a word for the con ganas you know uh with balls so they, they they really do like they wear it on their chest the weirdness of the situation the strangeness of of the world and there isn't like necessarily the same sort of call to adventure that you see in western rpgs rather it's more like a, a call to survival everything feels like it's done out of necessity and then sheltered away deep within this like already surface level weird and and confusing and downright depressing world is things like near lepithep uh in bloodborne uh one of the endings spoilers you essentially become a god a moon god and the moon god looks like who that's right. HP Lovecraft's Near Lepithep. So what the heck is a Near Lepithep? <laughs> I'm realizing this is like my favorite segue. It's one of HP Lovecraft's many like cursed, disgusting, undescribable gods, beings, elder things. You know, you get the drift. If you know anything about Cthulhu, it's basically one of those. Except this thing looks terrifying and it's a shapeshifter. And... H.P. Lovecraft really inspired a lot of the whole horror, sorry, burp, a lot of the horror in Bloodborne, and it's crazy how that game incorporates different aspects of horror. So we're going to tilt a little bit, not necessarily away from medieval fantasy but we're gonna kind of keep the same train of thought going forward with our little discussion about bloodborne so bloodborne initially seems to be really heavily inspired by traditional sort of i guess you can call it like uh i would call it western fantasy western horror fantasy something you would think of when you think of like universal monsters you know um, zombie, vampire, kind of like, you know, stuff like that. The Transylvanian looking city, uh, really, when you think of like the Transylvanian looking city, it should also kind of be inspired by like, uh, London, you know, think of, um, the fogginess, kind of like Jack the Ripper vibes. If you get, I really hope you're getting the picture I'm painting because I don't know how to put my feelings into words for this specifically, but you think of cobblestone streets tight corridors filled with weird ghost bloody people weird scary you know and then it really does dip further into that strange western fantasy with uh, some aspects that make me think of dracula like the original um book uh that I, I, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't read the original book, it's, I read the comic book version of it in grade school, but I remember quite a bit of stuff. I, I think of that specifically because, you know, you're drinking blood 
from a coven of nuns that bleed based on the moon phases you're you're drinking menstrual blood basically and that weird kind of stuff is something that again not a lot of people pay attention to but is really heavily influenced and based on um european folklore and and really just western folklore as a whole has a weird obsession with like blood vampires and women and it's it's strange to see that sort of reflected in an rpg made again by an entirely different culture that's heavily inspired by european fantasy yet another drink break i'm so sorry (laughs) but yeah so i kind of want to collect my thoughts on this because here I am talking about how it's influenced by folklore, but I mentioned H.P. Lovecraft. How do these things meet? Well, that's it. It it it, it does something awesome, <laughs> where it's like all of these really scary things that are happening that really like you know resemble like vampirism and people are going crazy and they're walking around in deliriums and stuff like that. And then you walk across a bridge and some invisible force picks you up and crushes you. And the more knowledge you learn, the more of these strange beings you can see perched atop buildings. And that's just it. That's where the H.P. Lovecraft stuff comes in. The cosmic horror of the situation comes in when your character starts to learn things that he shouldn't know. Forbidden knowledge that gives him access and the ability to see beings much greater than he is, stronger, more powerful, and infinitely more in general, just infinitely more than he is. And now he's affected with the insanity of it. How crazy is that? That's cool, isn't it? I hope that hits you as hard as it hit me when I heard about this for the first time. I think that's fascinating. The way that you can incorporate folklore and overlap it with H.P. Lovecraft stuff and still have Bram Stoker influences and stuff like that. It's it's cool. It's really cool to me <laughs> the way that like fantasies can be. Fantasy started off as stuff, you know, that's like folklore and, and different things like that. And it all seems rather straightforward. And yeah, you know, if you really get into it, you can do um, different lens, different ways of looking at stuff through different lenses and get different ideas and stories from it. But really, it, it, it's all kind of straightforward compared to a lot of the stuff we have now, and it's because now we can layer all of this stuff on top of it and and create these beautiful menageries of, of stories that are completely different and separate from the their influences. And that's going to bring me to loop back around to Bethesda games. Like I said before, we're going to talk about Fallout. And this is going to sound weird because I started off talking about medieval fantasy and then I kind of shifted gears into Western fantasy in general. And now I'm really talking about Western fantasy. And I mean like cowboys. (laughs) So Fallout New Vegas is probably one of my favorite games. I've played that game quite a few times. Haven't done it recently because something about it keeping me from it i've tried don't get me wrong but i, I don't get any pat like anywhere past the the, the the beginning screen 
I don't know what it is that's stopping me from doing it. But I think it's because that game is an experience. Fallout New Vegas is pure Americana. All aspects of it. But that's not the point of the game. That's just an aspect of it. A motif. A theme. The real meat and potatoes behind the game is old world blues. The inability to let go of something you thought you can hold on to. The inability to let go of the past. Now, why is that Americana? Why is that Western fantasy? Well, because Western fantasy, American fantasy, is based on the fear of industrialization. For the longest time, our heroes were cowboys on the edge of society. Our villains were outlaws who came from deep within the desert. And now, it's different. There's not really cowboys anymore. And that's why I think that New Vegas is so fascinating and, and, and special and so much of an experience because it sort of retroactively became a commentary on that aspect of American fantasy and and the cultural vernacular. The inability to hold on to the concept of a, of a hero, of, of a cowboy, is so beautifully painted throughout New Vegas. Specifically, the thing that comes to mind right now is Joshua Graham from the Honest Hearts DLC. Um, for those of you who aren't too inclined to know about video games, uh, DLC is downloadable content. It's basically just an additional part of the game that you can get after, you know, playing the, f the full game. And the Honest Hearts DLC takes place in Zion National Park after the bombs have fell, just like the rest of the game. And you meet a man named... Joshua Graham. He's also nicknamed the Burn Man. He worked for the main bad guy in the game, failed the main bad guy, and then was burned and thrown into the Grand Canyon by him. And Joshua Graham is also a Mormon in the Apocalypse. 200 years after the Apocalypse, actually. Hardly anybody knows about Christianity now. But he has such gravitas in the way he is. He has such weight in his voice and, and such ferocity in his intention that despite New Vegas running on a rather old engine, even for the time, and not kind of really not at all holding up to the modern day standards of any game, he's still considered like one of the best characters. And in one of the most terrifying character concepts altogether. Because he is the ferocity of the human spirit, twisted and, and pulled and perverted by its own self. He has an inability to let go of his incessant need for revenge. He is, by all means, a cowboy. 
but an evil one. If that might have been seemingly a lackluster like finish to what I was saying, I really take a second to think about that. The grandeur of the American symbol, the cowboy, ripped and perverted and, and twisted and damaged to the point where all it can think about every day is the pain that it feels. And that's Joshua Graham. It's a deconstruction of fantasy and folklore that is so close to our own modern-day society in the West that we could we can look back at it right now with accuracy. We're not guessing at things. If you look back hard enough, if you, if you look into the papers hard enough, you could find where you came from, where your family was, where your neighbors were. It was like, f- what, four or five people ago. Not lifetimes, people. The idea of that put into perspective, sorry, is somewhat disturbing to me. Because it puts into perspective all of fantasy. And, you know, again, my love for medieval fantasy of, is it all escapism? I don't think it is. I think that fantasy, and by extension, fiction in general, is important. Even in times of strife, in times where things are bad, really bad, like gun to the head bad. Fantasy doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing because it's ways that it's it's just another way for us to express feelings and ideas. The human condition is characterized by our own inability to effectively communicate. And fantasy is just another way for us to do that more effectively. Some food for thought. I like this concept. Honestly, I think it's pretty neat. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.